Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at letitrollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the seventh episode of the funk season of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring Morris Day, Prince's best frenemy, protege, and rival. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. We're doing one of our special We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus episodes. So as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Justin Bankston. Welcome, Justin. Greetings. And we're talking about Morris Day tonight and the penultimate episode of Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2. And the time. And the time. Yes, yes. Yes, indeed. So, any general Mostly we're talking about Prince, really. Exactly. Exactly. That is, it's, it's sort of the, it's not even the ghost of Prince. I mean, he's pretty omnipresent in this episode and it, it makes a nice pairing with the two part Rick James episode, which Prince did haunt like a ghost. Um, and here we are talking about Morris Day, who was totally overshadowed by Prince in his career. And it turns out dominated by Prince uh, over that same time period. But we'll get to all that. But Basically, it's a pretty straightforward structure. It pretty much straight chronological starts with uh, Morris's childhood. Um, well, actually, it starts with the 1984 Grammys and, and introduces the persona of Morris Day using the vehicle of uh, Rick James's keyboard man, who's one of the first guests, Levi Ruffin, that, uh, the, the director of the Stone City Band that we remember from the two-part Rick James episode. And he tells this anecdote about being introduced to Morris Day at the Grammys after first claiming, of course, you know, that we were kicking ass and we were number one at the time. Don't y'all forget that. And I love the way Levi always has to get his props in for the Stone City Band and Rick James, which are well-earned. 
But he tells this story about being introduced to Morris Day, and Morris completely dissing him, refusing to shake his hand, and responding to his introduction with, I'm cool. And and then Levi wanting to beat his ass. What kind of impression does that give you of Morris Day right off the bat? I mean, you'd think he's kind of a douchebag, because who acts like that? And Levi is completely correct in that at that moment, you know, as leader of the Stone City band, he was like the baddest motherfucker in that place. And this guy is just clowning him like unacceptable. Yes. Yes. But it fits perfectly. If you recall your purple rain with the persona of Morris day, that was just indeed that was actually, I guess at that time, world famous already. If there was the 84 Grammys, maybe the 84 Grammys were celebrated in the year of 1983 so it was before the movie came out so that might that might have been the thing but that establishes the morris day persona and and uh, the woman that tries to defuse the situation points out to levi that he's in character which that's the theme of the whole show that morris day is a character and not a character created by morris day but a character created by prince correct which is a pretty bizarre career to have indeed indeed and and that's the thing about Prince is, is you, you start thinking about this and you think about Vanity and Apollonia and all the other people whose careers were sort of satellites of the great Prince son, you know, just orbiting, orbiting around. And we've already seen, you know, a similar phenomenon with George Clinton, but George seemed to endow people. I don't know. It, it didn't it just Clinton didn't seem to have that same urge to dominate or need to dominate that Prince did because Prince utterly dominates Morris Day in the time, but we'll get to that. Well, it's about retaining control, you know, like George Clinton was happy to get things going with people and then let them go do their thing. uh, Knowing that he was getting his props from it by being involved, you know, and he didn't have to control everything that happened once Lucy was out the door because his stamp was already on it. And that's just like knowing where you're at as a artist and as a human and and being, you know, uh, not being a completely self-conscious control freak. Yes. And so the episode then goes into a pretty straightforward narrative of Morris Day's life, starting with his childhood. And now I'm blanking if it was Illinois or Indiana, but the, the classic was my grandfather was a pimp. And so I would, I would, my mom would dress me just like her dad to take me to church. So all the ladies loved me, which gets into all kind of weirdness uh, about American culture, African American <laughs> culture specifically. Like uh, and the the animated sequence of young Morris the pimp walking through church uh, was just a scream. Absolutely, I mean the classic giant pimp hat, the long coat, everything's <laughs> purple and yellow. I mean. Yeah, it, it's it's classic. But then the family moves to Minnesota, where he meets Prince, and you know Morris is a drummer. He he, he self taught, loved watching James Brown on the TV and da- and doing the dance moves. But then he takes up the drums. You know, beats beats holes in the couch to the point that his mom goes out and buys him a drum set. And then he hears about an opportunity to play with a band in Minneapolis that turns out to have a guitarist named Prince and. Immediately, Prince is a very strange individual. Yeah, from the get-go. 
Yeah, and and you know does this weird dead eye stare thing, and 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 would occasionally lapse out of it. You know, after weeks, he finally deigns to talk to Morris, and and you know would occasionally laugh, but then immediately turn the dead eyes back on. You know, on tap, and they and they get uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and others to talk about the reason that Prince was tolerated was even at age 13, he was freakishly talented. I mean, and if you get Jimmy Jam and Jerry Lewis talking about how talented somebody is, you know, they're talented because those two guys are incredibly talented musicians. Yeah. I think they, they sort of soft play in this episode. What just Titans, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are. I mean, they, they say, Oh, and then they go on to, whatever they went on to fucking rule of shit i mean they were huge yeah absolutely and they mentioned that they produced janet jackson and everything but i mean they're pretty much one of the architects of new jack swing and the whole rb sound of the late 80s the next step in rb after prince i would say was dominated by jimmy jam and terry lewis and 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 so it does minimize it a bit but i I also think that they're assuming people have some familiarity with how big they are and and recognize that when you know they say that Prince was on another level as a guitarist, as a pianist, as a drummer, that right. that means, whoa, dude was on another level. And, uh, yeah. and, and then, you know, the story advances to tell how, you know, Morris's family moved to Maryland and he gets this job, you know, making $5 an hour or whatever, uh, renting cars. And the first time he hears uh, Prince's I Want to Be Your Lover is Prince's first hit single boom he's he's in the car driving back to minneapolis and and hooking up with prince and this echoed to me the um scene in the rick james episode when rick james goes back to buffalo and 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 reconnects with the stone city band did you see that connection i can see that yeah it's sort of the reverse thing like uh rick went back home and like found his friend who was currently running the hot band and just took it over as the lead and Morris just kind of came back because his buddy Prince was killing it and just w- was hoping that he could get involved somehow. And, and he did, but he certainly didn't take over Prince's band. No, nobody's going to do that. And and then, you know, he's playing with them. He's walking back into the fold and comes up with a riff that Prince likes. And Prince wants to buy it from him, either for 20 grand or a, or a music contract. Morris takes the deal, but in some senses, it's a deal with the devil because that deal explicitly spells out, at least according to the show, that Prince had complete control over Morris's band at the time, from selecting the members to the songwriting to the production. And, you know, as it turns out, that, that that's a deal that Morris finds more and more difficult to keep up, to keep over time. Yeah. And then... And then they they go into a, a great story of you know well first they tell about how Prince helps Morris become a front man because Morris is originally a drummer even after they sign the deal he's going to be the drummer but there's another guy who's the singer and that guy talks himself out of the deal by demanding you know they they say swimming pools and mansions and stuff from Prince um, either way there was no longer a singer so Morris has to become a singer and he's reluctant but Prince coaches him into creating this cool character the morris day character which to me is a classic example of how a visionary interacts with a talent i mean morris day is clearly a talented person clearly a very charismatic performer and prince could see that i mean somebody like prince has a level of awareness 
of these things that ordinary mortals do not. And he saw something in Morris and then helped him bring it out with this, just put your hand in your pocket and act cool. And, and it, it speaks to Prince's innate sense of persona building, that he understood what stardom was about from the get-go and knew not only how to turn himself into a star and craft a persona for Prince, but how to craft a persona for someone else, which is a whole next level thing. It really is just wildly impressive. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. And, and then they tell this great story about how the uh, famous Morris Day and Jerome bit with Jerome, uh, his valet and the, the roadie for the time, uh, brings a mirror on the stage so Morris can primp right there in front of the crowd. And, and you know, they talk about the first time Jerome does it. And Prince is just rolling on the floor laughing and, and insisting this has got to stay in the show. And it, and it becomes a Morris Day trademark. And, and we'll get to the whole... Uh, juice machine and titty lamp story, I'm sure, but but it's it's <laughs> <laughs> definitely a highlight of the episode. And then it talks about you know going on tour with Prince and and the rivalry between the Time and the Revolution, where the Time are clearly second class citizens. You know, Prince and the Revolution have state of the art tour bus. And the time has this janky old bus where the driver has to get his hands greasy, keep his hands greasy all the time because he's constantly not under the hood but under the engine block in the back. And, and you know, then they, they tell some tales about the VHS porno tapes that the, the band's watching and, and some great anecdotes from Alan Leeds, who we remember from the James Brown episode, who, you know, went from being James Brown's tour manager to Prince's tour manager. And he tells, the, you know, compare and contrast the sort of suburban white wine party that Prince is having versus the total ghetto blaster party that the time is having. And, and like Alan Leeds, I would personally gravitate towards the time. I don't know about anybody else. Indeed. And that totally echoes a, the similar dichotomy they showed in uh, the Rick James episode where the, there's the Rick James party and the Prince party, and they were very different vibes. And Prince showed up to the Rick James party uh, and just didn't get noticed. Yeah, and that same thing happens uh, with the time, even when he has Big Chick carry him in. And I had forgotten all about <laughs> Big Chick, who was you know, part of the Prince um, menagerie uh, of characters back in the 80s and the, and the, and the immediate uh, aftermath of Purple Rain and, and his ascent to superstardom, but just a classic character. You know, if you're a five-foot-nothing uh, black guy, you know, who's the better bodyguard than this, you know, six foot, eight inch white guy with a, with a white hair and white beard and just a perfect, perfect bodyguard for Prince. But then things get kind of serious and they talk about how the time breaks up because, you know, Prince had, had stipulated in the contract that, you know, he didn't want him doing outside, didn't want anybody in the time doing outside work. And, and, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam get this deal with the SOS band and produced an album. I recall that album. It's it's kicking. Um, and because of a snowstorm in Atlanta, they miss a flight, miss a gig in, in San Antonio. Prince has to play bass from the off stage behind the curtain and ends up firing these guys. And 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 this is a very telling anecdote. It, it's Prince calls them up and has a meeting. And they get there and and it's Prince and Morris Day. And the guitarist, Jerome, who are behind the table, but Prince is the one that does the talking, and Prince is the one that's firing them. And they're just like, you know, fine, whatever, we're off, you know, 
to have our our own superstar ascent and and great career and they really make it clear through the rest of the episode that Morris Day's heart is never really in it after that. That, that you know that they Prince puts together a new version of the time for him and and gives him a big role in Purple Rain, but Morris basically bucks and drags against the halter that whole time and is a massive pain in the ass during the making of Purple Rain. Does one show with the new band after Purple Rain, walks right off stage through the party in the dressing room, out the door, and drives away, and then. You know, and that's it. And then, and then they sort of have the rest of the episode is kind of an epilogue where they talk about the reunion of the time at Paisley Park in the two thousands that Prince paid for and and you know uh, commissioned, I guess. And 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 you know, then there's a touching anecdote about the last hour, the the, the last conversation, hour long conversation that Morris Day and Prince have, where Prince tells him he loves him, and Morris Day breaks up telling the story. And so that's the basic thrust of the episode. Any thoughts on the general plot arc? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a interesting. It's kind of, you know, there's just not as much meat to it as a lot of these other episodes because the time is sort of, you know, it's a short time time. And, you know, the this whole story is just about what Prince got up to with this guy and then it was over and then that's that. And so it's really kind of a way to, to have an episode that deals mostly with Prince, uh, but, you, you, you know, a Prince would probably, a Prince thing would probably be a full two-parter, you know? Yeah, it would have to, it would require a full two-parter, and plus you don't know if you could get the right interviewees, you know, to do a Prince yeah. episode, where with this episode, you know, we'll segue into our usual discussion of who they talked to. They talked to Levi Ruffin a little bit. They'd already talked to him for the Rick James episode, so it was probably pretty easy to get him to talk a little bit about Morris Day. Uh, then they get Morris Day himself. Great interview. You know, obviously cooperative with reduction. They've got Jellybean Johnson, the drummer in the time. They've got Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who that's the key get, I think. If you know, once you got Morris Day and you've got Jerry Jam and Terry Lewis, you've got the story. And and yes. the rest is just building around it. And then they bring they bring back Alan Leeds from the James Brown episodes. Um and and then they bring in uh, Craig Rice for a very minor part. He's the assistant director of Purple Rain, and he just helps Alan Leeds tell the story of having to track Morris Day down and drag him onto the set of Purple purple rain you know going from party to party party house to party house trying to figure out where he's washed up uh you know the morning after and 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 drag him down to this studio to get cleaned up and, and throw him in front of the camera so i think the thing i liked best about these interviewees was actually that repetition and the familiarity with it because we'd gotten to know levi ruffin in the two-part rick james episode and we'd gotten to know alan leeds in the two-part james brown episode so it's this continuity with the rest of the season i agree 100 percent. those guys have credibility you like right out of the gate because you you know them yeah and then and then the other guys are principals in the band so you know you figure they know what they're talking about or at least you know have an agenda and then the song roster i actually thought ironically because the time other than Betty Davis, the time probably of all the artists featured in the funk season probably has the weakest catalog. But I thought they had one of the stronger song selections, ironically. Yeah, the songs were all pretty great. Yeah, so they start with Jungle Love, which is the obvious hit that you're going to start with. I mean, that was absolutely the high watermark for the time. And, and even though Prince probably wrote it, definitely produced it and played on it, 
that's a very Morris Day song. Yep. And then they and then they've got I Want to Be Your Lover, which is a Prince hit, and the only Prince song they used, but um Yeah. Pretty perfect but choice. It's a jam. Yeah, yeah, it's killer. And it's and it's one of Prince's lesser known numbers. It was it was a, his first hit single, but he had so many other so big, you know, hits and anthems that I think I Want to Be Your Lover's kind of been overshadowed. So it was a, it was a nice sort of underheard song. And then and then they've got Cool, which is the first um, Morris Day in the Time hit. And, you know, like we were talking about, established this, the persona of Morris Day. And, and it's just Prince's genius for branding and, and persona building is all right there in that one song. Yep. And then they've got the bird, which is uh, the Times dance anthem, and they tell the story, you know, in the episode of how Morris Day was inspired to come up with the bird dance by watching the pterodactyl. Uh, I, was that the Flintstones character? I think that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. So it's the Flintstones character, and then and then they end with the weakest song on there, which is Morris Day's "Over That Rainbow," which was a song he wrote and recorded after Prince's passing about Prince and. That was probably a condition for getting him on the show. That's just a guess on my part, but I, I think that's fine. I mean, it, it's it's it, it, in the context of the show. After the uh, Morris Day talking about his last conversation with Prince and and getting weepy thinking about Prince telling him he loved him, and then you know then it segues pretty easily into the to the introduction of the song where he dedicates it to his his friend and brother Prince. And so you know it's clearly the weakest song by a wide margin on there, but. I understand totally the, the the reasoning behind picking it. Yeah, I think it does its job just fine. And it, it honestly could have been a lot worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was your favorite part of the episode? My favorite part, I would have to say, is the sort of the young African-American society of Minnesota sequence where the first getting the band together and you've got the mirror, you've got the juice machine, you've got the whole, just this whole like series of shenanigans and all the animation is just absolutely hysterical. Yeah. So just a, that whole part of it was great. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, they establish, uh, you know, that they've got the spinner factors, letting them borrow, letting them borrow his, his club space to, to rehearse in, but they established him, you know, the first thing they see him doing is, is punching some drunk guy literally 10 feet down the street. So they established him as a scary badass who has these two rules. Don't touch my juice machine and don't break my tea lamps. And of course, and I mean, as soon as he says that, that you know that they're going to be violating both of those. Yeah, it's like a, the checkoff rule. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so, you know, they tell the tale of how, how both those rules are broken and, and, and yeah, the band lives to tell the tale, but just just barely. Yeah. I, I think I'd have to go with that. Either that's either that or the final conversation between Morris and Prince are are, are my favorite part. Just because, partly because you picked my favorite part, so I, I've got to go with my <laughs> second favorite part. But um, that part I, is I think, really touching. 
Yeah, it is. And it also echoes back to the Alan Leeds, James Brown conversation where James, Alan Leeds talks about the last time he got to hang out with James Brown. And it was just like, you know, two old men on a park bench reminiscing about old friends. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's an important part of this series is, you know, it's easy to see these, these performers as aliens, as some sort of superstar entity, but it's nice to bring it back to that. They're just human beings like us and that, and that they, it's important that they connect with old friends, especially friends they've had business relationships with and troubled relationships with, and 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 that that kind of water under the bridge and, and reconnection is a very powerful thing. So that was my favorite part. So what was your favorite song here? Why don't you answer first so I can't steal your song? <laughs> well, I got to go with I Want to Be Your Lover just because it's – it's a kick and jam. It's kind of unfair uh, to pick a Morris Day to pick a Prince song in the Morris Day episode, but that's ultimately what this comes down to. Yeah, the, it's far and away the jam of the episode. What's the second best? Uh, probably Jungle Love. Yep, yep, easily. And and you know, I was fifteen when Purple Rain came out, and and when that was a ever-present song on on we didn't have mtv in my hometown but on on night tracks or night flight uh it was all over you know the the hour video entertainment we had in Boulder, texas in the 1980s and uh, it's a great song it's just a kick and jam and and very much i think it's after especially after listening to the the to the time discography prepare for this episode which other than ice cream castles i've never actually had a, a time uh cassette or cd growing up and so it was pretty revelatory and the thing that i really noticed was on so many of the songs it sounds exactly like prince with morris day singing and you could almost hear the prince guide vocal that he's singing to and and jungle love is one of the few songs that's an exception to that and where morris day's persona is to the fore and so i mean i mean it really matches the morris day character really well yeah yeah it's it's perfect perfect for it and that was you know that was the real magic of purple rain in part was that whole rivalry between morris day and prince and and the the assholeism that that we talked about at the beginning of this of the episode from the morris day character that's what he made made him such a great foil for prince because who else is going to make prince seem sympathetic you know prince is so talented and so charismatic and pretty remote as a person and a persona that you need somebody who's just going to be an out and out villain to be his his rival to make him look good and and humanize him and so and i'm sure prince understood that perfectly you know i mean you get the feeling that prince is is moving people on the chessboard and and knows everybody has their role on his his grand opera that he's creating yeah so we've probably already covered this but the funniest part's clearly the titty lamp anecdote what's the second funniest part for me it was the little pimp in church yeah that's that's pretty cool for me it's got to be the creepy young prince and the way they drew his staring eyes when he would stare at Morris. Like Morris describes him as the kid in rehearsal who's just standing in the corner staring. And uh, yeah. and the way they draw it with with the big white eyes just and the and the pinprick pupils. And it, and then when they talk about the switch and they show Prince joking and laughing and then flipping the switch and going back to the stare, just hilarious. You know, it, it's 
And it gives you sort of a feel for what it would be like to be just a kid jamming in your garage or your friend's garage like so many millions of people have done. But to be dealing with somebody who's clearly different right from the get-go and, and sort of gives you an idea what it might have been like to be in a garage band with Prince Rogers Nelson. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yes, absolutely. And when you and when you get people like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis talking about what a prodigy he was, I mean, I'm sure you know, I know in my high school and everything, there were, you know, there was a pecking order of players and, you know, who could figure out the, the cool guitar solo or who could play that drum break or whatever. And, you know, you got to figure that, that in most towns, Jam and Lewis would be at the top of that pecking order. But to have somebody that's clearly on beyond them, you know, you're just like, damn. And, and obviously, I mean, Prince was probably the greatest musical talent of his generation. So not really a surprise. Yeah. What was the saddest part of the episode? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. The whole thing is built towards the prince passing away. Yeah, for sure. And and I kind of, when I first saw the season, and, you know, Prince is such a major character in the Rick James second episode, and then he obviously dominates this episode, and I really felt like, you know, not thinking about the realities of, of how do you get the rights and the interviews and everything? But I was just sort of thinking that like, it's kind of too soon to do a full Prince episode because for a lot of us, especially Gen Xers, it's still pretty raw. I mean, I feel like I've kind of mourned David Bowie and kind of welcomed him back into my rotation and stuff. But Prince, I still find kind of overwhelming to listen to a lot of Prince. And I, I've, you know, so I've, I felt like this was sort of the perfect way to, to acknowledge Prince and to mourn Prince, but not, I just don't think, at least I'm not ready for a full-on major Prince retrospective at this point. I need to let the wounds heal a little bit more, which yeah. seems weird, you know, like, oh, you're mourning a celebrity you didn't even know. But, I mean, this is a person who put – who built the soundtrack of our lives. I mean, you know, this is yeah. – my sophomore year in high school, my senior year in high school, college. I mean, you know, that time in the nineties, you know, seeing them live and everything. I mean, this, this Prince just had this massive impact on our generation and it's, it's a real thing. But the yeah, second saddest part, Oh, go ahead. And Prince is just way closer to us than David Bowie. You know what I mean? He's yep. closer in age. He's closer in geography. He's just like, he was way more our thing than David Bowie or any of those you know, first yeah. big boomer, you know, uh, rock stars. Absolutely. You absolutely. know, so it, 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 and he died so young, you know, it really does. It, it, it tears you up. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Painful. And then the second saddest part though, to me was that moment when jam and Lewis go into the office and Prince fires him right there in front of Morris. And, and to me, there's, you know, no better depiction of the way Prince emasculated Morris Day and and Jam and Lewis and everybody else. I mean, just that that kind of dominance. Even if everybody understands that Prince is the man, Prince is the guy with the vision, Prince is the genius, you know, and they're and they're with it and they're behind him and they're trying to help him fulfill his vision, it's still painful and, and shitty to be, you know, uh second tier guy in your own band. I mean, the band is called Morris Day in the time and, you know, they've, they've 
multiple tracks they're alleged not even played on you know prince played every instrument on every track you know it's one thing if he's doing that on his albums but to do it on somebody else's albums it's just kind of rubbing their face in it so that that was kind of the saddest part and 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 also he was sitting there knowing that you know jimmy jam you know and terry lewis are going to walk out of here and be fine yeah these guys these guys are walking out of here with uh their own agency and their own talent that I don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it would be difficult in any band to replace those cats. And then, you know, to know that Prince is ripping the heart out of your band and, and taking your, your boys away from you. It's, you know, and clearly more stay and Prince's relationship never really covered. Now we talked about from the beginning, the first thing, we we talked about Morris Day as you know that he was a bit of an asshole, but do we like him? Do we like him as a man character? Oh, I think he's great. I think he's you know he's a hilarious character and he's great as a his interview. All his interview footage is great. Uh, you know the way he talked about Prince at the end was great. I I I walked away from it really liking Morris. Yeah, ditto. And I, you know, I want to read his new autobiography that just came out, uh, co-written with uh, David Ritz, who's been a guest on the show. You know, and find out more. But based on this, definitely like Morris Day. Definitely like Morris yeah. Day. And I like anybody who can sing and dance really well. You know. Yes. And like, yes. there's some of that early footage when you see Morris dancing, and you're like, man, that guy can get it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And Jerome too. You know. I yeah. mean, uh, he's he's not necessarily part of the musical act, but he's definitely part of the performance and and a, and a great dancer and a great character. So yes, we like Morris Day. So recommended listening. I mean, I think the first three Time albums are pretty obvious choices. Ice Cream Castles to me, that's the one I grew up with. That was the you know the big hit. Um, but in preparing for the show and listening to their whole oeuvre, like. Pandemonium, the comeback album they did in 1990, which they totally skipped over the the Times non-Prince comeback. Like they had a comeback in 1990, they had their biggest hit single with I think it was called The Jerk, and and you know Jam and Lewis are all over it, and it's a pretty solid album all the way through. And and also uh, Morstay's first solo album isn't bad, and then um, you know it's it's and Jesse Johnson's review, the guitar player is not a bad album at all i mean it's very comparable to say the eddie hazel solo album we talked about on the george clinton episode so there's there's a fair amount of stuff there um you got any picks or favorites i mean all that stuff is cool and i think you know it's a great opportunity to go listen to the uh self-titled prince album featuring i want to be your lover excellent excellent recommendation yes and so Last thoughts on how this episode fits into the to the overall season arc. We've kind of touched on that, but any any put a bow on it kind of final thoughts? I, I'm I was super pleased with it. I mean, in some ways it was like the lightest weight episode, because uh, it tells such a small part of Prince's story and Morris's story is just sort of small in comparison to say Rick James or any of the other people or fucking James Brown. But the way it fits in with everything and the way that the, these connections uh, really made it feel satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it fit in really well and, and really enjoyed it. And so only one more episode left and it, I'm 
afraid this might be our last episode of Tales from the Tour Bus, period. We haven't heard anything about a third season, so all we can do is celebrate what they've given us. So, but I still believe that the, the rap season will come. I, let's keep our prayer candles lit, everybody, and we'll be back next week to wrap up uh, season two of We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus when we talk about Betty Davis, who's the sort of Blaze Foley of the funk season. So, Justin, thanks. And this has been Let It Roll. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2 featuring Betty Davis. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.